Welcome to Curva Mundial. Welcome to the latest episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and today my guest is someone whose work I admire deeply. You have read his articles on the brilliant website, These Football Times. He is the host of the Lob podcast, as well as the What's the Score podcast. And last year, he released one of my favorite books on the beautiful game, Brazil 1982, The Glorious Failure. Please welcome to the show, Brazil and England supporter and a fan of football, Stuart Horsfield. Welcome, Stu. Hey, Sal, thank you very much. Um, an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be here. Man, I can't tell you how, I mean, you can probably hear it in my voice, just how jovial I am. We're going to do a deep dive into your book because it is one of my personal favorites. It's certainly in the top five of my favorite football books. Uh, We recently recorded an episode of your wonderful uh, podcast, uh, What's the Score, recently, where I got to talk about my top three. If I could have picked five, (laughs) <laughs> 1982 would have been there and that's and that is no uh crap like that is that is the the honest truth and we will get into why i love it so much and what why i admire your writing but you're coming to us from england and yep. i guess i need to start off i just want to get it out of the way real quick i guess i need to start off by saying sorry not sorry for italy beating the three lions at Wembley. <laughs> yeah if i thought you meant it it would we'd be okay um <laughs> Yeah. Uh, where where were you and how did you watch the Euro 2020 finale? Okay, I was <laughs> I was at my mum's, bizarrely. I was at my mum's um, and there was literally just the two of us um, and she swore she'd never watch a football match with me again. It was, I think I watched probably 85% of it stood up. Um, I know when England scored so quickly and so early, I was up and pacing around the living room and Took me a while to get sat back down, but then, <laughs> as with all England, I would say all great England sides, but as just with all England sides, you could see the the change of the tide and the shift, and almost the air of inevitability as the way the way it was going to play out. Um, and probably by by seventy minutes, I think I'd started to come to terms with what was what would eventually happen, rather than the unbelievable possibility of what could happen um I think I'd, I'd come to terms quite quickly which I'm not normally a a, a negative person I'm not but it, having watched the 2018 World Cup semi-final against Croatia it had a feel very much a feel of the same very deja vu it was started brightly controlled the game but then once we were either worked out by the opposition or once we got tired or once there's that lack of big game management. Um, you could just see it was only ever going to go one way. And, and normally with England, you, you don't want penalties. But I think with the Italy game, it was almost hoping for penalties because at least then we were in with a 50-50 chance. But yeah, it just it it was it wasn't to be. And I and look, looking back, I think at the time it's you know it's upsetting, it's heartbreaking, it's all those things. But I think. Over time, history will judge Gareth Southgate very fairly and very well. If you think about what he's achieved over the last three years, it's even in my lifetime, it's you know, it's an incredible achievement. A World Cup semi-final, a Euro final, and, and who knows what's to come. But even that, history will history will look back on his time 
and the time of the England side with with great fondness, I think, and the, and the great experiences that he has given England fans recently, should we it, say? It is quite remarkable, and it is there was also an embarrassment of riches on the England squad, which you know the fact that uh, you have a starting lineup that includes both Harry Kane. And potentially Kyle Walker, depending on his age, you know, or how fit he is. You know, it's just, you know, a, a person up front and a person in the back, you know, with those that experience, those hunger for goals, Marcus Rashford. I It's just the fact that even I know Deli Ali didn't have the greatest season under Jose Mourinho, but that he stays home. It's almost like, wow, this is this is how good England has and will be for quite some time. So there is hope. Also, at the end of the day, too, is, is that you had the two best-looking managers and best-dressed managers <laughs> at that final. So we all won. I mean, Roberto Mancini yeah. in Armani outfit or whatever it was, and Garrett Southgate in the top coat, just looking just super sharp. It was, it, it was just classic, classic European style and flair and finesse that even if you were a neutral, you won just with the eye candy there. <laughs> The, the Italians are always always effortlessly stylish. Um, it's taken a long time, I think, for England to find themselves a young, stylish manager. <laughs> Certainly not in my lifetime. But yeah, the Italians, I don't think it matters who's. I can remember Enzo Berzot in 82 with the white jackets <laughs> draped across his shoulders like the Godfather. It's it, And he still made it look cool. It, yeah, Italians are effortlessly stylish. You know, seeing England make the run they did, what was that like for you? And what was the energy like in the country, especially after the terrible year the world had just had? It's, yeah, I think, I think it was, there's a lot of talk about that it was what the country needed. And, and I agree, it, it was what the country needed. I mean, obviously the Euros were, England were lucky in that a lot of their games, apart from one, were played in England. Uh, you know, some countries had some horrendous journeys across Europe to play games. You know, in England, we're very lucky. And that helped with the enthusiasm. It helped generate that um, relationship between the team and the, and the public. And I think following what had happened in the World Cup, the World Cup was such a, an unexpected run to a semi-final. You know, and it was, very, it was a very favourable run to the semi-final, but you could only play who's in front of you. Um, and so this time around, there was just that little bit more pressure, which England, England fans always think, or a lot of England fans always think England are going to win the World Cup. The press get involved and, you know, and all those sorts of things. So when the, when the Euros came around and England had got to a World Cup semi-final, there was, certainly for the, uh, the first time in a long time, real enthusiasm and, or optimism um, that England could do well, especially with the favourable draw at Wembley. Um, and again, the, the draw was, you know, the draw was kind. It was, a, it was a kind draw. There's no getting away from that. Um, but it was, it, it wasn't so much, you, you touched on earlier about the, about the squad and the young team and the young players and the, almost the embarrassment of Rich. I, I, I don't know if it was the, it wasn't so much the football and the results that got people going. It, it was, it was the personnel and the team and the personalities. It was a real, it was a real reflection of England, you know, and might, we might get onto the, the discussion about the penalty takers and the black players and the horrific abuse that they got from social media. But the England team at the moment is, a, to me, is a real fair and true reflection of England as it, you know, as it is now. 
in terms of it's very multicultural, you know, the, the voice of the youth, the platform, you know, Britain feels, or England certainly feels very tired. Um, you know, you look at politics and people are becoming incredibly disheartened and uninterested in politics. And yet you have someone like Marcus Rashford who's taking this social stance on child poverty and child hunger. And, you know, and, and people can relate to him. Young people can relate to him. You know, people at, you know, school children can relate to him. And this is what was happening with the England team. And, and this is what Gareth Southgate has done is create a side that, that the English public can relate to. And I think it was that, it was that that, that drew the country together. It was that that generated the excitement and enthusiasm, probably more than the results um, and the nature of performances. Some performances were great, you know, against Ukraine. Some performances were horrendous. You know, the game against Scotland was dire. Um, but what never changed was the, the belief in the side, the belief in the young players, the belief in this multicultural, very positive role model, very open and engaging with the press um, sort of camp that Gareth Southgate has set up at his time as England manager. And I think it's that, that the people, the British, uh, the English public, I can't say British, Scotland fans will be hammering on your door on your podcast, um, that the English fans really bought into more, probably more than the results. Certainly I did. It's been a long time since I've enjoyed watching England play. And under Gareth Southgate, because of who he's picked and the, and the way he's gone about his business, it's made watching England a real a real pleasure again. And it's I've not said that for a long time. Wow, it is astonishing because I grew up in the era of what I thought was probably would be the greatest English side ever, which was the team that went to both the '06 World Cup. And potentially, you can argue, make the argument, the 02 World Cup. But 06, you know, Wayne Rooney at the climbing, the heights of his career, David Beckham at the peak of his career. Just so many others. Again, another embarrassment of riches. The job, unfortunately, doesn't get done. But seeing, as you said, what Gareth Southgate has done in the post-Fabio Capello world of the Three Lions, it is beautiful to see the England team because it represents, as you said, all of England. Everybody can cheer for somebody. There's somebody there that looks like them. And that's what's really special about this. And, you know, unfortunately, to some degree, you can't really say that. I couldn't say that about Italy in this past summer. Potentially moving forward, perhaps. But, you know, this past summer, we didn't, we saw a very traditional, I guess you'd say, Italian side. Um, but what was special about England, as you said, was the fact that you had players that represented a little bit of everybody on, on in the country. And, and of course, the activism, which is a hard, which is a huge part of it, you know, especially coming out of a year where, you know, the whole world protested for Black Lives Matter and Marcus Rashford in a pandemic is saying, let's feed the kids. Whereas politicians around the world were trying to, were throwing their hands up in the air, just saying, eh, just stay home. Everybody will be fine. Wear your mask. Whereas here's a player who's using his platform to, yes, tell people to stay home and <laughs> do the things to ebb the coronavirus, but also, hey, let's get some meals going. And, it, and that is extremely special because it's also the same summer where you see his partner, his striking partner up front, 
demanding more money from Tottenham Hotspur and Harry Kane. So the dichotomy of those two different players and what this game means to them. And that's not to verbally attack Harry Kane, but it is, it is striking that the headlines there were Marcus Rashford's feeding the kids. Harry Kane is fed up with Tottenham Hotspur wants more money. It, it, you're right. I think, I think relatable is probably, is probably a better, is probably the right word that you've chosen there. I think the England team was relatable. You talk about the golden generation of Beckham, Gerard, Lampard, Scholes, Terry, um, Rooney, and it, it, on paper and in theory, you're probably a far better side than um, the current England side, but they were so unrelatable. They were, and it felt like they were, they, they felt like megastars and they felt untouchable. It felt like you couldn't relate to them. And you also felt that, you know, you've just mentioned there about, you know, wanting to represent the people and represent the country. You, you know, there was always this, and, you know, there's people have said it before in, interviews that following the end of the career and in books that you know about little clicks within the England setup I and mean, you always felt that that was there the Liverpool players the Manchester United players the Chelsea players but in this England team you don't you don't have a sense of that it's just team England if you like for for want of a better word and and, it, and that comes down to Gareth Southgate as well that he's managed to generate that feeling that sense in an incredibly short space of time in what is must have been quite an ingrained mentality within the England setup. You know, it's changed very, very quickly. You now, whether it's because he's used a lot of young players, whether because it's of his personality, you know, we may never know. But you're right. Um, the difference between those two sides, you know, one was arguably better than the other, but this one is far more relatable and far more engaging. And there's a real you know, you want them to do well for them, never mind for, for yourself as a fan and for the country. You feel like you want them to do well, whereas, you know, with Beckham and Scholes and Lampard and, you know, the success in Champions League, like you, well, yeah, you never really felt that affinity to them. It's, it, it is strange. It, it is, it's very, very strange what Gareth Southgate has done, but incredibly commendable how he's managed to do it. You touch on something that leads me perfectly into where I want to go next, which is your other favorite team, because camaraderie is what made the 82 side and the, also the appeal that they were the everyman team doing extraordinary things. One thing that struck me about your book, 19, Brazil, 1982 and other football relating writings you have is that you've managed to success, uh, successfully inject your personal story in your writing. And it's something I am attempting here probably miserably on Mundial, but you make it look so effortlessly and effortless. And like, how do you do that? And what is it like going back in your box of memories and writing about the team that completely changed your life? And it's not the team that we just discussed. It's a team that's on a whole other part of the world. It's, I, I would, I wouldn't, I don't class myself as a writer and some people, not tell me off for that, but think, well, actually, you really should do because by by definition, you've written, so therefore you are. But a friend of mine, um, call, he calls himself an accidental author, and, and it's a great way to describe it. It's, I, I, only ever, I can only ever write one way, um, and that's through personal experience, what I 
felt, what I saw, how it made me feel, what I like, what I didn't like, what I enjoy watching, what I don't enjoy watching, what to me is appealing about football, what's not appealing about football. So it's all of those things that sort of fall out onto the page. Now, some people find it incredible that I don't support a club side. They, you know, they, well, how can you love football and how, you know, and they don't get it. Whereas some people think, oh my God, that's great. It must, it must free you up and liberate you to enjoy football for all its facets and just always find the good and never find the bad which is also true you know it, it doesn't um but in in terms of my love of the game probably 90 percent of my enjoyment in the game comes from the game when i was a kid um and not the modern day game the modern day game is great and i'll watch it because i love football i'll always watch it but i don't I don't have a real passion for it like I did when I was a child and when I was growing up. It was, you know, everybody knows as you get older, you have more responsibilities and things become more important. And but as a kid, it, it completely consumes you and you um it is your life, it, it's what you live and breathe. And it might not be football, it could be playing the guitar, it could be um photography, you know, it could be whatever people are interested, in. but when you're a child, whatever whatever your first love is it can consume you because there are no other responsibilities. And, and, and that's what football did. And because it, it was so consuming, the memories are so vivid. And because there wasn't 24 hour saturation, you know, we over here, we have Sky Sports News. It's, it's constant, it's social media. You didn't have it. You know, the football you had was so fleeting and sparse. You know, you would get the FA Cup final, you'd get the European Cup final, you would get, the odd England international, you might get some football league depending on who owned the rights and what was happening at the time, but you got so little football that what you did get, you just committed to memory, you just committed to memory because it had to sustain you for probably a whole season. You know, once the FA Cup final had finished, that was it. You know, there would be, or the European Cup final, there'd be no more football till the next England international, which might be September. And, and that was it. You, you just didn't get it. So you committed everything to memory um, rather than going on your phone or going on Sky Sports News and watching it over and over again from 30 different angles, then having it picked apart by pundits. You didn't have all that. You, you watched it. You watched the action replays, as they were called then. You listened to the pundits at halftime at the end of the game, and then that was it. It was finished. So you... I just used to absorb it and absorb it and absorb it and absorb it. And it's, it's obviously just stuck. And then from there, it's a question of regurgitating essentially the best part of about 15 years of all those stored intense memories and emotions. And they just fall out onto the page, depending on, on what it is that I'm, that I'm writing about. But it's the, the book, especially writing a book about a team as a, as a 48-year-old man, it becomes really difficult when you're trying to explain how they make you feel. So it had to be written as if the 10-year-old me was writing it because otherwise it, it wouldn't have made sense. If I was trying to write it, I'm going, oh, I love that team and they were this and they were that. People would just think I had a bit of a hang-up, whereas writing it as, look, this is what it was like when I was 10. This is the, this is the world I lived in. This is how they made a 10 year old feel. And, and that's how I had to write it to get it across 
because otherwise it it wouldn't have made it wouldn't have made sense otherwise. I felt like I was on those schoolyard pitches with you, running, playing, and then running home, dashing to watch whatever you can watch. Um, like I was, I felt like I was right there. A lot of the similarities that you wrote about in your book, and you and I have talked about this off camera for months now, is, is that it was extra wildly similar to how I felt in 1990 uh, for the World Cup of 1990 in Italy. Um, Italian 90 was what, to me, was what 82 in Spain was for you. And it was, it, I felt like we lived parallel lives, just like six years apart, then we find out we're 10 years apart. So it's, uh, it all sort of made me just like fall in love again with a tournament that I already fell in love with. And for all the reasons you had just stated, but the difference is that I was going for the team that was hosting it, which was my cultural makeup, the, the country that made me fall in love with this game and the country of my father's birth and my grandparents and, you know, defines me as who I am. But you were going for a completely different team that, you had never even been to Brazil. So what was it about the Brazilian team, especially in 82, in a post-Pele world, that made you fall in love with them? I think, like I say, I, I, don't, I don't support a club side, never have done. So I, and because football was so sparse on the televisions, I, I would watch anything. I would pick a side and I would just be like, ah, oh, this game, I want them to win. And this is, and I would justify it to myself at the time. And, and that's great. Um, but within that, I always, it might sound quite shallow, but I was all about the aesthetics. I was all about the, the art. I was always about the, the beauty of the game and what could be produced. Um, you know, I could watch a game that would be 5-1. And if that one goal was incredibly beautiful, then that's what I would take from the game. Never mind that a team that obviously played really, really well, totally dominated, scored five goals. If that one goal was a piece of what I like I call them like pieces of art because that's what they are then that's what I would take from that game and I mean English pitches British pitches at the time in 1982 were horrific you know they were just mud baths and you know you'd get players like Glenn Hoddle who would stand out and produce you know the most sublime skill but in England it was never those those attributes and it's probably still not never truly valued it was work rate athleticism pace power strength speed they were the things that were highly prized um in england and within international football you know and glenn hoddle was classed as a luxury player but you know there's a great quote from um i think it's arson wenger at the time you know if glenn hoddle had been french he'd have had 150 caps and and he would have done you know it's you look at players like Michel Platini and, you know, they're just, they were so beautiful to watch. Um, but in 82, it was my first World Cup. And like you say, in 1990, I think, I think you could talk to 99% of people and they will think that their first World Cup is the best World Cup because it, it forms their opinions. It forms the experience. It, you can't get enough of it. You know, there'll be people will say, don't be ridiculous, it's 1970. No, it's not. It's 1986. No, it's not. It's 2002. It? But it, 99% of the time, it, usually you'll find it's, the, it's whatever is their first World Cup that they can truly take in and absorb. 
And so the Brazil side uh, played on the second day, second day of the tournament. Um, Argentina, Belgium was the first game. We didn't get to see it over here because the Falklands War was still on. So the Argentina game wasn't shown. Second game was Italy. Now, I won't say Italy, Poland, I think. It was nil-nil. It was a dire game. Um, and then on the evening, it was Brazil, Soviet Union. And it was just, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before, nothing I'd ever heard. Um, the colour, the spectacle, the noise um, from the Brazilian fans. And then they played, and I, mean, like, I talk about this in the book a lot, but it was... It was just the way they played. <clears throat> it, everything was back heels, everything was flicks, everything was step overs, everything. And, and it was all the things that I prized in the game, all being played by one team, all in the same game. But, you know, I, it was almost like, for me, it was like a season of highlights distilled into 90 minutes. And I couldn't believe that this one team, <clears throat> sorry, were capable of producing just this brand of football almost at will just because they could, um, you know, and I'd never seen anything like it. And then even though they were 1-0 down, didn't matter. They still kept playing the same way, didn't phase them, didn't bother them, didn't change the way they played. And then, you know, they score Socrates' goal, which is an incredible, incredible goal with sort of 15 minutes to go. And, you know, at the time Brazil are favourites, they don't go running in to get the ball and run back to the halfway line and put it down. You know, they're off celebrating the joy and the, they don't care, you know, it's such a beautiful goal. And the best bit is it's not even the best goal in the game, let alone the best goal of the tournament. The next goal is, you know, with three minutes to go and it's still my most favourite goal of, of all time. And, and it, it, from that moment, that was it. I was, I was hooked from the minute the second goal went in that that was it that was a bar had been set that still exists even today that I judge all other football teams by um and I think a lot of teams nowadays suffer through oversaturation I think Pep Guardiola's Barcelona side are an incredible were an incredible football side and I think if I'd only seen them sparingly and in patches and just briefly they probably you know, in the midst of time and what you think you saw, they would probably be as close as any side I've ever got. But because you can, you saw them all the time and you see, it almost numbs you to what they could produce. Whereas the Brazil side, it was, it was played, it was halftime, it was full-time, it was highlights and it was gone. And that was game one done. And it was just, what was that? You know, you couldn't watch it for the rest of the night. You couldn't get it on your phone. You couldn't get it on your iPad. It just, it was there, played gone and it was just like what what was that and so that from there it became a desperation to could they do it again the next time in the next game and I was just waiting with bated breath to see what they would do the next time they they took to the pitch what's amazing is that for all the things that you just said about the lack of 24 7 coverage also the world was sort of at a different point in that time Obviously, you know, the Cold War is still happening. You know, the Soviet Union is playing behind the Iron Curtain. They're not Russia. Uh, and you're seeing two different countries playing two different styles. You know, the Brazilian Yoga Bonita, I guess, you know, what is called is unmatched. And I don't think people realize that 
today, again, as you said, oversaturation, the world had never seen that type of playing after Pele had retired. You know, Maradona, of course, was still making his name in the world. It would, it would, he would close out the decade to be the one-man army that he was. Uh, you know, it's almost, it's almost like as if Bjork wrote that song, Army of Me, just about him. It's <laughs> um, a great line, yeah. It's like, that to me is just like, yeah, you see like the one-man army going. But, but as you just said, like the, the setup of that tournament with two countries that could not, that there's not a similarity among them. The only thing that's, that's similar is that they're human beings. That's it. That like in terms of style, in terms of just even language, uh, uh, vocabulary, even the alphabet is not, you know, nothing is the same. It's almost as if you have two alien nations battle. It's the war of the worlds. You know, it's two alien nations battling each other. So what's that like, you know, exp- now, again, as you said, it's oversaturation. We can see what Russia is going to do. We can see what or have an idea of what Argentina or Brazil is going to do. Obviously, Messi's an alien, so you never can predict, um, you know, but everywhere you, you can get a taste. You know, Roberto Mancini, I'm sure, and Gareth Southgate, I'm sure we're watching the other games from the opposition at all times before the Euro, which is why that game was so was a slugfest. And you know, that final that we discussed at the beginning. But never seeing them is a completely different animal. And the misconception in America is that football has always been on television across the pond. That, you know, there were no such thing as delay of games, which you talked about in your book. So what, again, like, what is that? What was it like watching matches like that growing up, but with the delay, but also, again, that this is a whole new view into a whole different world and culture it's you're right i think i think football in brazil and you know we've again this is something you and i have chatted about off sort of off air if you like and you know football very much reflecting society or reflecting culture or impacting on culture or culture impacting on football you know they're very they're a very symbiotic relationship um and i think brazil is probably the greatest example of of how you can almost distill an entire culture into a single sport whether it's through music through dance through color through attitude through personality everything that is to me that is brazilian comes out in that football team you know whether it's the 11 players whether it's the way they play the ball whether it's the color of their kit whether it's the noise coming from the stands, whether it's the fans and the sheer exuberance, whether it's what feels like a permanent party while they're playing, while it feels like the colour um, under the floodlights. And it, like I say, it, I'm not one to say, oh, you know, back in my day, everything was so much better. You know, people say that all the time, but I was, I was really lucky because, you know, Argentina seemed a very grey and very cold World Cup. Mexico 86 seemed very hot and dry and you know some of the games were on at 11 at night whereas Spain was European time it was perfect time and you know these games under the floodlights played a massive part in that Soviet Union game um you know that it just sort of accentuated everything that was that was happening you know the game started in sort of low evening summer sunlight 
and then it just gradually turned into just pitch black and the floodlights and the, it it was just a magical sort of aura that these players you know they, they did come to Europe in 81 they came to England played at Wembley you know we got we got highlights um but it, it's strange because watching them in in England in spring still felt really cold you know and it was under floodlights at Wembley but it, it wasn't quite right but you put them in a a really warm Mediterranean environment and it was almost like water in the plant it just flourished you know they just sort of flourished in that in that atmosphere and in that environment everything just seemed set up for Brazil to be Brazilian I think is probably the best way I can I can describe it and that team was so Brazilian <laughs> and because they were so Brazilian it brought out the Brazilian-ness of the fans and the and the supporters and the you know they just seemed to feed off each other as the tournament progressed they just seemed to feed off each other and you know they were like you said there were these you know none of them at this point played in Europe apart from Falcao who played at Roma you didn't see South American club games you you know you had no clue yes they'd been at Wembley the year before and won one nil and but it was you know they didn't play anything like they played in the World Cup. Um, so there were just these mystery men that, like you say, almost from another planet that just turned up on a, well, I think it was a month on a Monday evening and there they were all of a sudden. And like I say, you were just like, what was that? Literally, what was that? You know, who plays the game like that? Do they always play like that? You know, and you, you know, as, as, a, as a kid, it was going back to the, sort of your World Cup guide that you're buying, you have sat next to you on the settee and you you go back through it to the Brazil. Now you've watched them playing like Socrates, right? Okay, let me just read a bit more about him. And you sort of learn as you went along, as the tournament went along, because prior to kickoff, I knew who Zico was. had no idea who Ed Air was or who Falcao was or who Socrates was really. and no clue who Junior was. And yet they just exploded onto onto a television screen for 90 minutes and then left again for a few days and, and that and that was it but it was yeah it was to me it was brazil on a patch of grass in spain is what it was the country had just moved and plonked itself down in seville and it was like this is us this is what we are in brazil this is what we represent this is what we stand for and this team are gonna promote us as a nation and that, that's what they did Oh, I got chills just like hearing about it. And I like, I want to go back and read <laughs> um, the one thing I want to talk about, which has been a topic of discussion among fans and pundits for the last few months now. And that is this idea of a world cup every two years. I feel that we've gotten to a point again, as we talked about oversaturation, where we all sort of have an idea of what the tricks the opponent's going to bring on or what each country is going to bring to the table. But a two-year, but what makes a World Cup so special and why I think it's the only trophy that matters is that it does happen once every four years. And it's not a guarantee to anybody, um, not even the favorites. So bringing that to two years, do you think it waters it down and loses all of the magic that is left in an international global tournament and 
20 years from now, 30 years from now, will there be kids having the same feeling that you and I had about our respective first World Cups? Uh, I, I think... I think you're right. I don't think they'll feel the same way after every two years. Probably AJ is probably the youngest. You can probably experience a World Cup and, and fully absorb and remember it. Now, if you're seven and it's World Cup year, you're then 11 by the time your first World Cup comes along and then your next one is 15 and you're on, you're on your sort of way out the other way, if that makes sense. But that's what makes it so incredible that, you know, it was just like, like for me, like I say, it was 82 and 86. Those two tournaments, that four-year span with Euro 84 sat in the middle, which was also outstanding, even though England in its wisdom decided not to show an awful lot, you know, and missed out on the great platini French side, but that's by the by. But those four years, those two tournaments sort of set in stone for me what my relationship with football, like I say, I think in bizarrely now international football is probably the last other non-league and grassroots football but international football is the last remnants of of the jeopardy that exists in football the money you know the champions league it's such a misnomer it's it's not a league as such it is at the beginning it's not played by champions it's played by first second third and fourth you know it, you know you can buy your way to a final, you can lose a couple of games and still qualify for the knockout stages. And even if you get knocked out in the knockout stage, you can go play in a different competition if you want. And, you know, there's all these manufactured, you know, to me, it's a manufactured tournament where you get chances, you know, if you lose, don't worry, you can still get through. We didn't do very well this year. We'll go and spend a hundred million on this play and a hundred million on this play, whatever it is. And, and so, international football there is, there is none of that you, you've got the players that are born in your country and that's it and you you live and die by those players getting them to play there's no transfer fees there's no wages you can't entice it's just nation versus nation collection of players versus collection of players and so it's to me it, it, it's a true comp it becomes a true competition then um and i think like you say the World Cup is the reason why they want a World Cup every two years is because a World Cup is so treasured and so special and so magical that you just taking all the magic out and it just becoming just another tournament, you know, every two years. You know, and people will argue again that, well, yeah, but you can have more countries can host it, you can bring the experience to the nation, you can bring the experience to fans, but you're bringing a different experience, you're not bringing a four-year World Cup, you're bringing something else. You're bringing a different entity. You're bringing a different tournament. So you're not actually bringing it at all. You're just bringing something else. You're bringing a diluted version. Um, I am a traditionalist. I am a football romantic. You know, the reason why the World Cup works is because it's every four years. You maybe get three attempts, arguably, if you're a very, very good player. Four, if you're exceptional but probably only realistically two attempts in your entire career to win a World Cup or even play in a World Cup. But that's how it should be. It, that is how it should be. It shouldn't be six or seven attempts. It should be two, three, four at the most. And that's why people love the World Cup. They don't love it because it's every two years. They don't love it because it's 
oversaturated because you don't have to wait long for it. They aren't the reasons why people love it. They love it because it's so special and so unique and so infrequent. And the anticipation that comes with it is part of what makes it what it is. So don't, don't say you're bringing it to the masses in more countries because you're not, you're bringing something else. You're bringing a different product that people probably won't value and prize as much as they would a four-year tournament that eventually comes to their shores. Oh, I couldn't agree more and I couldn't say it better myself. The other thing too is, is that we talked about fashion earlier. There's no sponsors on those kits. Yeah. It's, it's, just, you, you, it's just your name, your number, and the crest. And, and it, that's it. That's all you need. And that's yeah. really, you know, it, it's almost as if like, it is the most back to basics on a multi-bajillion dollar yeah. scale. Yeah. But is as, as much money is in flux in a World Cup. It is the most back to basics grassroots of it all, simply for the fact that, yeah, money's involved for the tournament, but those teams are all sort of at a, to some degree, an even playing field. Messi's not getting paid the exactly. salary. He's getting paid at PSG. He's getting a stipend to stay in a hotel and eat. I think probably I think the, the best example there is, is Argentina 86. In, in club football and Champions League football, that, that doesn't happen. That never happens because if you have a player as good as Diego Maradona, you surround him with great players as well. Whereas Argentina were, obviously it's a good side. They win a World Cup. They're not, you know, they're not a poor side, but what they do have by birth, nothing else purely by his country of birth is the greatest player in the world, arguably the greatest player ever seen at that time, at his peak. We talk about these four-year cycles. You know, it, it, for him, it was perfection. And, and again, it's, a, it's not even a once-in-a-generation thing that Diego Maradona did it's you know so far it's still not even come close to being repeated but that's the beauty of international football it's you know this is the hand you dealt go win a world cup and you know Diego Maradona went okay I'll I'll go and win a world cup and I'm good enough to do it by myself that doesn't happen in club football it doesn't happen in Champions League football it can only ever happen in a world cup you know it's the only place it can happen it's so funny you bring that up because at points, especially that 06 Cup, I actually thought that, all right, Italy has a unit, England has their golden generation, but Samuel Eto'o is at the peak of his career for Cameroon. Africa's never won a World Cup or an African country has never won a World Cup. He's got the swagger and bravado to do it. Don't count them out. Andrei Shevchenko at the height of his career and all of the powers that be. And... No, and I think if he could, I, I don't, I don't, when I think of Ukraine, I think of him. Yeah. You, know, you think of, I think of him and Chernobyl, which is like, you know, two polar <laughs> opposite things to be thinking. But it is, he is to me the, the face of that country and not even a politician. He's talked about yeah. even running for politics, but he is that I, I was definitely afraid. But also, again, they didn't do that at Doan. Shevchenko respectively and it also almost makes the aura and lore of Maradona that much more special uh, yeah it's it you know what he what he did was well like I say it's not even once in a generation it, it's once in the history of a tournament you know as a as a world cup have been won so completely by one person I, talk about Euro 84 you know the only 
bizarrely, it was only two years earlier, but, you know, Platini's nine goals and back-to-back hat-tricks in Euro 84 is probably the closest. But that was an exceptional French side um, with the magic square in midfield. And, you know, so it wasn't just Platini, but Platini was exceptional in that tournament in and amongst other exceptional players. Maradona was exceptional in an average team. Well, he was beyond exceptional in an average team. But that's that's the beauty of the World Cup. That can only happen in international football now. It, it can't happen in club football. It won't happen in club football. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from modcup.com. Modcup, drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. But you touched on earlier about being a neutral, which I love and appreciate. And I'm sort of in awe of because I, I tend to get too caught up in club football. Um, and uh, I'm sure my my wife and my therapist would also uh, agree <laughs> that like, you need to just take a step back sometimes. But um, being a neutral, it must help you for what you're doing in terms of studying for your UEFA B coaching license. You know, how is that going and how does one obtain this? Uh, so, well, my UEFA B is three years in the process, thanks to the pandemic. Um, it, it was, it, I was, you, you know, over here, it's um, oh, they're just the FA in the middle of completely restructuring it. And it, it essentially goes level one, level two, level three, level four, are the, are the levels it goes for the FA coaching. Um, level one is very much an introduction to football coaching. Level two becomes a bit more technical tactical um allows you to is, is probably the minimum standard you know if you were going to run a side at grassroots level if you were thinking of maybe working with a professional academy a level two is a minimum requirement with the sort of definite that you're going to progress to a level three or ua for b as they call it ua for b there's quite a big gap between a level two and a UEFA B, like I said, to confuse things, the level two will now become a UEFA C, which will actually make things a bit more understandable. Um, And the UEFA B, um, you know, it's really big. It's one year, it's one year program. Um, You know, there's certain criteria you've got to meet to coach on it. You have to be coaching at a certain level. You have to be coaching a certain standard of football. Um, There's a project involved that you run as part of the coaching program that you present to the rest of your peers who are on the program. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's 11 months, the course altogether. Um, but it's incredibly technical, incredibly tactical, very much deals with phases of play rather than just the sort of technique and how you embed technique into a game. It all of a sudden becomes very tactical as well as technical. So it's, you know, those skills that you embed as a level two coach, you're now expected to be able to implement them in certain phases of the game, whether it's in possession, out of possession, whether it's transition, you know, those, that's the big step up for a, the UEFA B coach. And again, if you're looking to coach at academy level or youth team level within a professional club, that's pretty much what they ask for. Um, as, as the bare minimum and then you have the the a license which is the level four and you know is, is a, again a very 
large and long in, and costly over in England um, investment. And that's, you know, that's the sort of, you can have a pro license and, you know, the FA are great at making money um, and <laughs> courses for courses. But, but yeah, ultimately a UEFA B is, is, is a very good standard of coaching. Um, those who go on to do a license coaching, I have nothing but admiration for, and the, you know, far more football intelligence than I will ever have on a technical and tactical um, sort of front. I've been lucky enough to work with two A licensed coaches, bizarrely, um, in the last two jobs that I've had, and a third job that I've just got at the moment. I'm working with another um, coach who's just applying for his, who's working towards his A license at the moment. So I've been really lucky to work alongside really, really good football coaches, you know, really well qualified coaches that have, that I've just stood and watched and thought, how did you see that? You know, how, <laughs> where, where did you see that on the pitch or where did you get that from? And it's just about seeing the game differently. Like you say, as a neutral or when you're a fan of a team, you can't help but get caught up in the event, the passion, the environment, the result. Whereas when you watch the game as a neutral, you see so much more of the game, so much more from both sides, so much more from both perspectives. It's almost a, a cold-hearted look at a game when you're not a fan and you can look at it from a coaching perspective. It's, yeah, it, sometimes it can feel a little bit cold watching a game as a coach. Watching a game as a fan of football, completely different. Love it. You're currently working on the follow-up to your book. Uh, please tell us about that. So it's going to be no surprise <laughs> about the 82 World Cup. It was probably unfinished, unfinished business, should we say. Um, originally, I wrote a book because, like you said, I host a podcast on uh, for these football times. And one of the series that we run um, is about football books, and we invite authors in. Um, and I was asked to host it by Omar, who's our sort of editor-in-chief and he's great and he asked he agreed for me to host it which was fine and I'm forever grateful for and we set up this this football book series and this guy called Stephen Scragg and Gary Thacker are the co-hosts and they'd both written books and then we were getting authors on who'd written books and here I was as a host having never written a book never gone through it and had no comprehension of what it was like trying to host a show with three people who had I was like, I'm such a fraud. I am such a fraud doing this. I really should just write one just because I can then say I've done it and I can relate to the conversation. So that was how I could, that was how it started, was purely just to save face and feel like I could be a part of this gang that I really enjoyed being a part of. Um, and I was like, if I'm only ever going to write one, I'll just write it about the thing I love the most. And that was that team. So that, that was that done and put to bed. But then... You know, when you've written a book and anyone who's done it, you're, oh, you know, for the first few days, you think never again, not a chance. No. Nope. And then you miss it. And sort of within a week to two weeks, the miss kicks in and you think all the heartache and all the, the deadlines and the deletes and the rewrites all just go out the window. You forget all of those and you just think, I really miss the research. I really miss having something to work on. So I was like, okay, you know, the, to me, you know, Brazil, you know, were a great team and all the things, but they were quite a small part 
of the story of that World Cup. To me, it was a World Cup that had so many, so many different facets, right from the debacle that was the World Cup draw, right up to you know the expansion from 16 to 24 teams that um, Havalanche implemented. It was the the birth of sponsorship and commercialism. It was 14 different um, cities across Spain, which is the most there's ever been. Um, it was it, it, it was the game between uh, France and West Germany, that epic semi-final. It was Harold Schumacher and Patrick Battiston. It was the game between Austria and West Germany where they contrived or however you want to word it to play out a one nil win so that Algeria don't qualify. It was a tournament where like say, you know, you know, Italy scraped through having scored one more goal than Cameroon, Cameroon exit the world cup, having not lost a game, England exit, having not lost a game. Um, you have the, the phantom whistle between France and Q8, you know, and the Q8 delegation walk on the pitch and want to take the team off. You have Paolo Rossi, who goes from a spectre on the periphery to golden boot winner. You have the Brazilians. It just had everything to me as a, as a tournament. And so, to me, it feels like it's... Nostalgia takes a little bit of time to kick in. Um, and I think probably the time is right. People look back on the 82 World Cup now certainly my age, with really fond memories. But a lot of it is around the Brazil side. A lot of it is around selling this country. A lot of it is around England not losing and that um, West Germany-France semi-final. But there was so much more that people forget about, like Boniek for Poland was an incredible player at a great World Cup. Maradona getting kicked off the park. Um, in Barcelona, which is where he was just about to go to that summer by Claudio Gentile. Um, you know, it, it it was just a tournament that, like, say, Algeria that beat, you know, West Germany, who go on to be the finalists, but, you know, Algeria beat them. You know, it, it's just an incredible tournament. Um, so it's 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 about that. <laughs> it's, oh, it's about that tournament. And again, it, it it will probably be written not from this person, Chine, but it'll be from the 10-year-old me who, again, you know, not it won't be a you know a repetition of what I did as a child and all those sorts of things. It won't be that. It will be more the sort, you know, that it will still have that wonder and that excitement and the, you know, the fact my mum sent me to bed before the France. <laughs> West Germany game finished and how it was a grudge that I bared for an awful long time and you know and it was how Marco Tardelli completely changed how goals were celebrated for about the next two years in playgrounds it's it's just all of those things but that that's how you have to tell the stories if that's how old you were when you if I was telling if I was telling the story of Euro 2020 played in 2021 I would write it from this person's perspective but you can only write, to me, you can only write about events through the person you were when you lived them rather than just in retrospect. Absolutely. Oh, it's a great way to put it.
Ah, that's why you're one of my favorites, man. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, as I stated earlier, you host the What's the Score podcast and combines many of my favorite things, football, music, and human interests. I also hear you have a really good guest in one episode down the line. His name rhymes with Pal Ono. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was good. He was, he was quite good, actually. All right, good, good, good. I'll, uh, I'll be on the lookout for that one. Yeah, you should uh, do it. It's a, it's a good episode, that one. <laughs> uh, please tell us more about it. Um, so it's, again, I, I feel like I have a really low boredom threshold. So I, I, I like new things to be happening all the time. Um, and it was, I, I love music. I can't sing, I can't play an instrument, but I love it. Um, and football and music, you know, certainly in England, you know, there's a real strong relationship um, culturally, you know, between the two. Um, love books, always read books, always read football books. Um, and obviously, again, with the pandemic, I think people, a lot of people turn to reading um, in terms of pastime. You know, there's been a real explosion of brilliant fo- well, sports writing, not even just football writing, you know, brilliant sports writing, exceptional football writing. Um, so I was like, right, they're my three favorite things. I'm sure they'll fit into a podcast, no problem. Um, so it was like, it's like, right, how can I, how can I work this? And over here in England, I don't know if you're aware, we have a, a really, really long running radio program called Desert Island Discs, and yeah. you, yeah, so you get people on and you talk to them about their career, and they get to pick, I think it's eight songs. They have the Bible, the works of Shakespeare and a luxury item. And there's a whole show around it on the radio. So I was like, right, we'll, we'll do something similar, but we'll, we'll have the guest and then we'll, but it'll be football related. I'll get them to recommend three football books for people to read as part of the conversation. Um, and then we'll find out what their three favourite songs are. But that's really tricky and it can usually change daily. So I picked 10 categories, so song that takes you back to your childhood, song that you most associate with football, favourite movie, theme, tune or score, song that best represents you, just different categories. And then that way, hopefully it would have become easier for people to pick songs. So people pick three songs based on those categories. And then, you know, we talk about why that song, what is it about that category? And then, um, so that sort of runs through. And in between those choices, we talk about, people's career the relationship with the game I've tried to make it so that it's not just the same type of people but people who have different either interests or contributions to the game so that obviously there's yourself um, who's a journalist and you know passionate football fan there's um, another person who's written a book um, John Helm who's a commentator John Sheridan who was the physio um, who looked after Gaza's knee injury before his transfer from Tottenham to Lazio. Um, I have a guy called, uh, in fact, Steve Hunt, who played for the Cosmos um, with Pele. He's coming on. Um, John Helm, a football commentator who commentated the H2 World Cup. So I'm trying to find people who have a different contribution to the game, but are sort of unified by a love of the game and obviously their love of books and music. Um, so it all just gets packaged in to 45 minutes plus injury time or a lot of injury time. 
as one of those episodes has, has shown. I mean, I'm um, just I'm just so overwhelmed and honored to be amongst that cast for season one. I, I feel like I'm the least qualified. You want to talk about imposter syndrome? I mean, like, there you go. But I like it was probably the most fun I've ever had chatting about this thing. That I would, I would imagine you'll be the only music journalist I'll ever get on. I'll ever get on the show. So <laughs> everybody, everybody brings their own unique, their own unique brand um, to the podcast. So don't worry about that. There's okay. no imposter syndrome whatsoever. Um, and then it has quick fire questions at the end. Favorite team, favorite manager, greatest game, greatest goal. Who were you in the playground? Da, 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 da. And then right at the end, <laughs> again, just because why not? A random question that I don't know. It's just draw. I've written loads of questions out. It just gets drawn out of a pot. The guest doesn't know, and it's purely unfootball related, and just puts people on the spot to finish the the show. And it's around anywhere between forty five and fifty minutes. All of this now leads me to my favorite part of it, which is something similar to what you're doing, which is the three quick fire questions. These are questions oh. I'm asking every single okay. guest, uh, and they're centered around your team. Now I know you have England and Brazil to pick from, so if you want to answer for both. By all okay. means, you want to answer for one or the other? Totally cool, too. Okay. If you could bring back one former player to your team, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Zico okay. um, for Brazil, just because he, he was my childhood hero. Um, he, he's the first player I've ever seen who had no weaknesses. Um, he could score great goals, great free kicks, overhead kicks stepovers, but he could make the most simplest 10, 15 yard pass look again. And I keep saying it, but look like art, the pass to junior against Argentina that took out four Argentinian players. And it was only about 15 yards, but it was, it was a side foot pass of 15 yards, but it was distilled into this piece of perfect art. And that's what I would bring back. Oh, I mean, when you describe it like that, I think that's the answer for everybody. Nothing really beats that. Enough. This next question is better for club football, but I still think that's it, okay. it could work for a national team. If your team could have one player today, I normally say if your team could sign one player today. Yep, but That's okay. Uh, who would it be and why? Okay, so I would I would have this with England. I wouldn't go with Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, which would be the which would be the obvious ones. Um, I would want Kevin De Bruyne to play for England. Wow, you are the second guest to pick De Bruyne at for respective teams. Yeah, which yeah. really unbelievable. And I and again, I make the same joke. I'm going to make the same joke I made in uh, in a later episode. I make in a later episode, so spoiler alert. Um, but I mean, he looks like Prince Harry, so of course, <laughs> of course, he fits the England team. So pale and pasty. He, he, he's got to be English, and he's called Kevin. Um, but yeah, he ah, he's just he's a throwback to to like I said to all the things that I I love about football. Anybody. Anybody who can make something look simple, it to me is a genius. So, you know, it can be the great guitarists of the world, the great pianists, the great painters, the great 
whatever doesn't matter what it is you know if you can make something look simple that is that everybody else finds so difficult you know to me is a, is a true sign of genius and he just makes the game look so simple you just wonder what everyone else is doing why is everyone else sweating when this young pasty gingerhead lad called kevin is making it look so easy and so simple um yeah i'd want him playing for england ah uh, i mean again it's it, the prince harry look at you <laughs> and i can just see if he would be in an english kit i can just see the future king just sitting there watching the guy that looks like his brother going he did it again I do fear for him in Qatar. I, I genuinely <laughs> fear for how his skin is going to hold up. I, I mean, I feel for a lot of folks that are, I mean, and yeah. what, whatever happens in that tournament um, in a year from now is going to be disastrous for a lot of players, but we shall see. Um, now, my final question here is what has been your favorite moment as a fan? Oh, what a great question. I think my, my greatest moment as a fan was, it, we'll, we'll put Brazil 82 to one side. Um, my greatest moment as a fan was, Alan, this is a great question. <laughs> They're always changing my mind, but I'm going to stick with it. Was, was Alan Shearer at Euro 96 scoring his header in the semi-final after I think it was about five minutes? Because... I, I, at that point, I genuinely believed we were going to win that semi-final and we would then go on and win the final at Euro 96. It was before, it, there was the scars of Italian 90 in the penalty shootout, but Euro 96 felt so different. Um, you know, it even felt different to the, the Euros that we've just had. Euro 96 was, was just, it, everything about, England, Britain, the UK at that time, politically, culturally, you know, it was Oasis, it was, it was Britpop, it was Tony Blair, it was the Labour Party, it was, you know, it, it was at that point, at that moment was probably, certainly in my lifetime, the, the greatest time to be living in the UK, but that's because anything felt possible at, at that time. And again, as we've talked about Brazil in 82, you, the football team there almost represented that Alan Shearer, Paul Gascoigne, Steve McManaman, David Seaman, Tony Adams. You know, those, those players sort of represented, what not quite as cool as Brazil were, but represented how it felt. Terry Venables got it right. You know, he got the vibe right, a bit like Gareth Southgate has done. He sort of knew what the country needed. You know, and that, that performance against Holland... It was incredible, but when Alan Shearer scored in the semi-final, I was like, I actually think we're going to do this. I actually genuinely believe we're going to we're going to get to the final. And if we beat if we beat Germany, we'll we'll go on and win it. But, you know, as long as we beat Germany, it doesn't matter who we play in the final, we'll win it. Um, and that when that header went in, I was convinced we would win the Euros. But um, I'm an England fan. I've learned. <laughs> 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 it means nothing. We we always score early in big games and then get tired and lose. I, I, it was the start. It was the start of that. But what is amazing, though, is everything you said surrounding that goal and that moment is so true. I call it the second British invasion. 
you know, our, our parents' generation had the Beatles and Stones, and I guess you could also put in Engelbert Humperdinck in that. <laughs> and like every major like British act of the 60s and late 50s that just like came out and exploded in the music scene, and that was the so-called British invasion. But the 90s was the full package. It was the politics, it was the pop. I mean, the Spice Girls had a movie, but it was all, you know, but also, you know, and Mike Myers is parodying them with Austin Powers and all of this. You couldn't, in America, at that moment in time, that summer, you couldn't escape the, the Union flag. You couldn't escape. It was unbelievable. And it was also like, for me, we talked about this on your podcast, like Oasis, that was, that was it for me. Like that was, that was my punk rock. That was my Beatles. That was my uh, hip hop. That was, that was, that was it for me. Like those two guys changed everything for me. And, I, and they did for a lot of other people around the world as we see, but leading up to all of that and then having England do so well in that tournament, it really is like, it's, it's the dot and the exclamation point at that point. <laughs> It, it, it was, and it was, it, like you say, it was just the, just sometimes, very occasionally, you, you get this manifestation of the perfect storm, culturally and socially. Um, and, and to me, uh, in whatever form it is, like I say, whether it's through music, through sport, through acting, through drama, through singing, through whatever it is, um, just occasionally, again, uh, culturally, gets it right at the exact right time, um, at a moment in time, and it really represents exactly what's happening in the country. And you're right, Oasis were that, we use the word a lot you know, on this podcast, but it, Oasis were the distillation. If you wanted to know what it was like to live in England or the UK in the sort of mid to late nineties, you just go listen to definitely maybe, or what's the story more in glory. And you, you're there, you, you're back in, sort of 1997 and it's it's everything you need to know about what it was like to live there oh, love it i can't think of a better way to end it uh if i had music rights i'd be playing <laughs> it right now you know uh but Stu, this was fantastic thank you so much my friend now um tell everybody where they can find you on on the social media uh i tend to hang out on twitter really more than I don't really use Facebook very much on Twitter. I'm on oh, Loxley at Loxley Misty 44. It's L-O-X-L-E-Y-M-I-S-T-Y 44. It's when I first set it up, I wasn't a football writer. I, would, I was, well, not say I was nothing, but I had no interest. Um, so I just went with my two children's names and a door number and just assumed that that would be fine. Now, People, people like, I can't find you. I'm like, no, you need to look for my two children and my door number. That's why. All right. And yeah, so that's that's where, you, and it's too late to change now. But yeah, it's all right. It's, it's, that's you where you can find me. Another parental sacrifice. There you go. <laughs> hey kids, look what I did for you. This is it. Everybody that knows me on social media know you too. <laughs> you should be grateful for that. Stu, thank you so much again. Really appreciate oh, it. Oh, my pleasure. I absolutely loved it. It ah, oh, I love chatting about football, but I love chatting about football with people who care about the game and who are passionate about the game. It's yeah, it's been an absolute place. Well, it's been brilliant. Same, man. Thank you. I think I should do a podcast on it. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> 
Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.